Oh, thank you. Good morning, everyone. So glad that you have chosen to join us this morning. Well, let me get a uh, a big swig of coffee before we get started this morning. Mm. Now, some of you may not know this about me, but uh, I'm what they call a pothead. But don't tell Pastor Chris, but I can I can finish off a whole pot of coffee in the morning before I get started. You know, speaking of coffee, um, I do love coffee. But you know, for me, my coffee has to be hot. I love my coffee hot. Now, I know that some people like cold coffee. Iced coffee, frappuccino, which is kind of like a a milkshake, uh, a frozen drink. I've had them. They're good. They're expensive, but they're good. So coffee's good hot. Coffee's good cold. Now, when coffee isn't good is when you set your coffee down. You set your cup down and you get doing things. And you kind of forget about it. You get busy and then like 45 minutes later, you come back to it. And you and you pick it up and you take a drink. It's like, ugh, it's lukewarm. You, you kind of want to spit it out. It's a struggle to, to even swallow it. It kind of makes you want to vomit in your mouth a little bit. It's nasty. Now, this seems like an extreme analogy, but uh, some of you might be surprised to hear that in the book of Revelation, Jesus said the exact same thing. Not about coffee, but about Christians. About His own followers. About His own church. And it's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. He said, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. So today I am going to walk you through this passage. We're going to go through the entire passage. It's verses 15 through 20 because I want to show you exactly what Jesus was talking about. We are going to see why he said these things. We're going to learn what it means to be a lukewarm Christian. And we are going to look at what Jesus said must be done To correct this situation. And like today's teaching title, you can ask yourself, are you lukewarm? So the book of Revelation, that confusing, somewhat scary, final book in the Bible, it tells of the end times, it tells of when Christ returns, it's full of angels, it's full of beasts. It's often referred to as the apocalypse or the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this revelation, this unveiling of what was to come was given to the Apostle John. So revelation was a vision given to John. And he's around 90 years old at this point. He is the last remaining original disciple of all the 12 that we read about in the Gospels. He's the last one left. Everyone else is dead. They've all been killed at this point. They've been martyred, which means they've been killed for their faith in Christ. Now, it's not like John was just left unscathed here either, because they say he was boiled in oil. 
but didn't die. And then he was banished to the island of Patmos by the emperor Domitian. He, the Domitian was persecuting all the Christians. So John was sentenced to live out the rest of his life in exile on this island, which is today a part of Greece. And it's a small, rocky, windswept island that measures only seven and a half miles by six miles. And it's at this island, and they say in this cave, and it's called the Monastery of John, that he received this revelation from Christ. This is where Jesus came to him and he revealed this revelation. It's like God pulled back the curtains of heaven and he kind of gave this aging apostle this glimpse into the future. Now, I'm not going to get deep into the book of Revelation because truthfully, I'm not qualified to do that. That'd be Pastor Chris. But I'm just going to focus on the beginning. Because Revelation begins with seven letters written to seven churches. And these were all actual towns and cities in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And these churches had all been in existence for about 30 years at this point that the letters were written. And in these letters, Jesus reaped praise upon some of these churches. But then he scolded others. And today we are going to look at one of those letters. And it's actually the seventh letter. And it's the one written to the church in Laodicea. Now to fully understand this, to fully understand the language that's used in this, you have to have an understanding of this city. So let me tell you a little bit to set everything up. Let me tell you a little bit about Laodicea. It was a very wealthy city. Very wealthy. They had these massive theaters and these gigantic stadiums and these lavish public baths and massive shopping centers. You have to think of like a modern day Vegas. Very wealthy. Now the wealth of the city existed because of three things. It's textile industry. They were popular for these wool coverings they made to cover your body. Banking. And it's medical schools, which were famous for inventing a salve that you would put on your eyes and it would help you see. But in spite of this city's great wealth, they had one major physical problem that plagued them. And that was that they could not provide their own water supply. So what they did was they created these aqueducts and they would actually bring in water from other places. So six miles to the north of Laodicea, you had Hierapolis and Hierapolis. It was popular for its hot springs. Ten miles to the southeast, you had Colossae. Now, they were popular for their cold Springs. So what they would do, they would actually pipe in water from these two cities. But there were two problems with this. One was by the time either got to Laodicea, it was either hot or it was no longer hot or it was no longer cold. So in fact, it was lukewarm. 
Now, the other problem was that calcium would build up in these pipes. And this calcium would would taint the water, making it impure. You think of like Flint, Michigan right now with the problems they're having. So the water was nasty. It'd make you want to spit it out. It was a struggle to even drink this water. So by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm and it was unsanitary. So now knowing the background, it allows us to understand this text a little bit better. So this is what Jesus said in a letter written by John to the church in Laodicea to a group of believers who would have known exactly what he was talking about. And he said this in verse 15. I know your deeds. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I know your deeds. In other words, I see your works. I see what you're doing. I see what you're not doing. You see, this was a church that wasn't doing anything. And if you remember James 2 verse 14 says, faith without works is dead. So Jesus was seeing a church that was spiritually dying. They weren't moving. The people, had they had lost all their passion. They had lost that fire for Christ that propels you to do and propels you to be. They were stale. They were detached. And Jesus says, like your water, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. Because both are useful, but you're lukewarm. You're just, ugh. Jesus is saying, this doesn't just break my heart. It turns my stomach. So much so that I want to vomit. I actually want to spit you guys out. You see, then and now, the Christian church should be a reflection of Jesus. We should reflect that in love. We should reflect that in words. We should reflect that in deeds. You see, they may have been preaching the gospel. And the people may have been hearing the gospel. But they weren't living the gospel. They had become lukewarm. Jesus didn't like it. So what was the cause? What was the cause of this spiritual indifference in the church of Laodicea that drove Jesus to reprimand them so harshly? I mean, what causes a group of believers who had given their lives to Christ, a group of people who had committed themselves to Christ to now become lukewarm? And the answer to that is complacency. That's your first fill-in. Complacency. They had become complacent. And Jesus says in verse 17, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. And do not need a thing. 
They were rich. And these people had wealth. And wealth can have a way of making people complacent. Now here's your big idea for the day. What you have impacts what you do. What you have impacts what you do. Jesus said in Mark 10 verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the reason for this is the more you have of everything, the less you rely on Jesus for anything. The more you have of everything, the less you rely on Jesus for anything. These people had everything. These people had access to everything. And this wealth had caused them to become complacent. And this complacency had now caused them to become lukewarm. You know who else has everything? Us. Whether or not you choose to acknowledge it, being here in the United States... We are wealthy. We are wealthy. When Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter heaven, we're the ones hard to reach. We are at a disadvantage because we are rich and we have everything. And the more you have of everything, the less you rely on Jesus for anything. You see, the majority of us We don't need to depend on God for our daily necessities. We don't. I bet very few people have to get down on their knees and say, God, give me today my daily bread. And except for a few loopholes, because there are loopholes, but except for a few loopholes, even the most poverty-stricken in this country are fed, housed, given access to health care, and even given the opportunity for an education. I'm telling you, living in the United States is like being born with a silver spoon. It's not like this in a lot of other places. They don't have what we have. They don't have access to what we have. They don't have uh, running water, clean drinking water, an unlimited supply of food, access to health care. All they have is faith. Faith that their God is going to come through. Faith that their God's going to provide. Faith that their God is going to answer a prayer and come through with a miracle. And if God doesn't come through, they die. And it's no wonder that so many of these people across the world are just on fire for God. I mean, they are on fire for God. Their faith is like everything they've got. You know, I can look at my life and I can say, I got it pretty good. As you can see, I'm not starving. And if I am hungry... I can tell Alexa to order me some food, have it delivered, because I'm busy, binge-watching Netflix on my big screen TV. 
Heck, I've even got an app on my phone that uh, opens my front door, unlocks it. You just push the button. When my dad was a kid, he said they used to have to use a key. <laughs> Tough times. Wealth can make you complacent because what you have impacts what you do. And the thing is, we see that with this, with this church in Laodicea. They thought they were all this. And they thought they were all that. And they had everything. And they were everything. And Jesus goes on to tell them, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Big difference between what they thought of themselves and what Christ thought of them. And you think you're all these things, but you're not. You think you have all this going on for you, but you don't. See, they truly thought things were better than what they were. It's like that man that was, um, he was bragging to his buddy about his new hearing aids. He says, it's the best money can buy. Cost me $3,000. Well, golly gee, his friend said, well, what kind is it? And the man looked down at his watch and said, 20 till 4. Not as great as what he thought. And you see the people in the church in Laodicea, they had all this worldly wealth, but it was like their souls were just starving in the midst of all this abundance that was around them. They were spiritually bankrupt. And the worst part about all of this was they didn't even realize their deadly condition. Man, they were lukewarm and they didn't even know it. And you know, I don't think that this letter is in the Bible for us to say, man, I can't believe that church. They wasn't even doing nothing. People in that church all lukewarm. Because the truth is, I think we all get like this from time to time. I know I do. For whatever reason, it just kind of, you just kind of lose your passion. We get complacent in our lives. We kind of, so much gets going on and then we start, we just kind of get distracted by our lives. We just kind of spiritually go into auto mode. Kind of an autopilot and just kind of go. And maybe there's people that's in here today that feel like that. You just, you know, you just kind of lost some of your excitement. Your passion has kind of faded and it just, you're just really not doing anything. You know, I think the church in Laodicea is just like that. They just didn't realize. They just didn't realize how serious it was. They didn't realize how serious it was to Jesus until he pointed it out. He says, okay, here's where you are. Here's why you were here. Here's what we need to do about it. And then he proceeds to tell them three things that they must do and we must do. To overcome a lukewarm mentality. And the first thing is reassess our situation. Reassess our situation. 
Which means we have to look at things a little differently. We have to look at our situation. We have to look in our situation. We need to get a grasp on where we really are. Why we're there. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? You know, sometimes we're chasing things and we aren't even sure why. There was these two gas company servicemen. A senior training supervisor and a young trainee. And they were out one day, they were checking meters in a suburban neighborhood. And they parked their truck at the end of the alley and they worked their way to the other end. What the last house... A woman was looking out her kitchen window and she watched the two men as they were checking her gas meter. Well, finishing this meter check, the senior supervisor, kind of cocky, he challenged his young co-worker to a foot race down the alley back to the truck to prove that an older guy could still outrun a younger guy. So they take off and they're toe-to-toe and they're booking it. And they look back and they realize that the lady from the last house was huffing and puffing right behind them. And they stopped and they asked her what was wrong. And grasping for breath, she said, I don't know. But when I see two gas men running as hard as you two were, I figured I'd better run too. She had no idea what she was doing. And we get like that. We often chase things. Don't know why. For the wrong reason. Or chase the wrong things. And it's in these moments, it's in these seasons that this stuff is happening that we have to reassess our situation. Now in the last verse that I just read, Jesus had told the church that despite what they had thought, That they were actually poor and they were naked and they were blind despite, I told you guys this earlier, despite their chief exports being money, wool coverings, and an eye salve that they were famous for for helping people see. Then in Revelation verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. So you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. He says, you want to be rich? He says, I'm the way to riches. Gold symbolizes faith. Faith in Christ which is far more valuable than any material wealth that's out there. And then he counsels them to get white clothes from him to wear to cover their spiritual nakedness. And in Isaiah 1 verse 8 it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So the white clothes symbolizes purity. That's why people wear white at weddings. White clothes symbolizes purity and it symbolizes forgiveness. Jesus is saying, I can make you pure again. Jesus is saying, I can forgive you for where your heart's at right now. For where you have 
veered away from me. You can be made righteous again in my eyes. And then he closes out the verse by saying, but you need to put my salve on your eyes so you can see. Meaning you need to see my will. You need to see my way. Without me, you're blind. You need to give up your wisdom. You need to give up your reasoning. You need to let me guide you where I'm calling you to go. What I'm calling you to do. Who I'm calling you to be. Jesus says, my plans are way bigger than your plans. And you see, it's in these moments that we have to reassess our situation. We've got to ask ourselves, what am I focusing on? Who am I focusing on? You see, am I more concerned with impressing people than living for God? Am I letting other people's approval trump what God's wanting to do in my life? What God is wanting to do through me? See, no matter the age, man, we all want to be liked. That is something every single one of us have in common. So here's what we do. We compromise. We compromise. We t- what we do, we take something hot... And then we take something cold and we put it together and it becomes lukewarm. We compromise. We say, well, I know. I know the Bible says this and I know the Bible says that, but people don't really do this or that anymore. It's really not that big of a deal. If I hold true to my convictions, then my classmates, they won't like me. My co-workers, they, they won't want to hang around with me. So what happens is we rationalize things and we start losing our fear of a holy God. Because it's not that big of a deal to us. When we get so consumed with what people think, we no longer focus on what God thinks and then our spiritual temperature just starts to drop. Starts to go down. Jesus is saying, you need to reassess your situation. These things don't matter. You think these things matter, but they don't. You need to get your focus back on me. And if we go back to that Scripture... Where Jesus says, I counsel you to buy gold from me, refined in the fire. You see, gold becomes stronger when heated. That's how they harden the blocks. Jesus is saying, your faith becomes stronger in those moments when you stand upon your convictions. Your faith grows. Man, you cannot fear taking a stand for something because it's unpopular. I'm telling you what matters to Jesus must matter to us. And we're all going to slip up. We're all going to do dumb stuff. We're all going to stumble at times. But the thing is, we can't stay there. Jesus said, you've got to acknowledge it. You've got to ask for forgiveness, and then we're going to move forward. 2nd thing Jesus says to do, repent over our condition. 
repent over our condition. So verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Those whom I love, he says. You know, when my daughter was in high school and I found out she was at a party at her friend's house and her parents were away and they were drinking, I took action. I came down strong. I disciplined her. I made her know that I disapproved of her decision. I disapproved of her behavior. Why? Because I love her. I didn't want to see something bad happening to her. When my son mowed down a neighbor's cornfield so he and his friends could make a baseball diamond to play in, I took action. And I disciplined him because although creative, it was wrong. So I had to discipline him. I love him and he needs to know the difference between right and wrong. And you see, this letter to the church is Jesus' way of correcting them. We've got to catch that. It's His way of correcting them. He's doing this because He loves them. Everything He's writing in this letter to them is out of love. He says, I love you and I don't want to, I don't want to spit you out of my mouth. They needed to be corrected. Just like at times we need to be corrected. Jesus cannot and will not just turn a blind eye to it. His church is too important. The people in His church are too important. There's too much at stake for that. And He says, be earnest and repent. Being earnest means being sincere. Actually having an intense conviction to want to change. Now, repentance is turning away from what you're doing that is displeasing to God. You're foregoing your way for His way. So, Scripture tells us we must reassess our situation, repent over our condition, and three, recommit our position. You can tell I'm a musician came up with this outline. It rhymes. We recommit our position. Which means we must turn back to Christ. We turn back to Him. Here's verse 20. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus says, you got to let me back in. Because you've got to let me in. I'm sure we've all seen the famous paintings with Jesus Knocking at the door. This one here is the most famous. 
That's the most famous one there is. It's called The Light of the World. And it was painted by William Holman Hunt in 1852. Now my grandma had this one hanging on her wall for years. It's called Christ at Heart's Door. Painted by David Morgan. Now the truth is, there's a lot of pictures of this image. I actually like this one. But you see in all of them, they all have the same depiction. Jesus knocking on the door. And all these paintings, they're all inspired by the verse that we just read from this letter to the church in Laodicea. And what's so interesting about them are they all show Jesus knocking on a door that opens to the inside. And can only be opened from the inside. There's no doorknob. Jesus can't just go in. He has to be let in. Now for most people, if there's no answer, they leave. Now fortunately with Jesus, because of His grace and because of His love and because of His mercy, He stays at the door. He stays at the door and He just knocks. And He keeps knocking. And notice the verse says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, which tells us he's not only just knocking, he's asking. He's even pleading, let me in. Let me back in. You see, like this church in Revelation, to recommit our position, we have to open the door. We gotta open the door. We have to invite him back in. We open the door and we let Jesus back into our lives. No matter where we've been. You know, the only way to rekindle that passion is to open that door and let him back in. We get that fire back for him and for his purposes and for what he's calling us to do. We open the door. We let Him back into our hearts. We, we have to open His Word and we, and we let Him back into our minds. We pray and we, and we worship and it changes the way that we live our lives and all of a sudden it inspires us to become bold. And when you get bold, you want to share the good news with others. Because we really believe that people without Him will spend eternity in the, that the Bible calls hell. So we become driven. We become driven to be engaged on the front lines regardless of what other people think. And our lives become a reflection of Him in our love and in our words. In our deeds, we reassess our situation. We repent over our condition and we recommit our position. And then everything changes. Why? Because what we have impacts what we do. Bow our heads. Well, dear God, we uh, we just come before you right now.
thankful for your letter in Revelation, your reminder of how being lukewarm breaks your heart. And God, you know how I've struggled this past two weeks with this message. How the evil one doesn't want a message shared like this for ramifications and the impact that a fired up church has on God's kingdom. And God, for those of us who have been lukewarm, forgive us. God, forgive us. We desire to be a church that does your deeds. A church that not only opens the door for you, but a church that tears off the door for you. Let us go where you want us to go. And do what you want us to do. And be who you want us to be. And God, if there is anyone here today that has never opened the door to you, that have never invited you into their life, but they're ready now to do so, I invite them to share this prayer with me and they can speak it out loud. They can speak it in their hearts. It doesn't matter. We can all speak it together and recommit ourselves to you. But if you're ready to be made new and have your name written in the book of life, repeat after me, dear God, I admit that I am a sinner and I ask for forgiveness for the things I've done. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and was raised to bring me new life. I confess Him now as my Lord and Savior. I commit my life to Him from this day forward. I welcome the Holy Spirit into my life to guide me from this day forward. In the name of Jesus, we all said, Amen.